Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. If you're anywhere near history Twitter, you'll almost certainly have come across my guest today at a handle Clark of Oxford. Eleanor Parker's new book, Conquered, The Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England, draws out the stories of the often forgotten aftermath of the Norman Conquest. 1066 is a year very much carved into the history of Western Europe, and it radically altered the cultural, political and built landscape of England in a way that's hard to overstate. Say the conquest and everyone knows precisely what and when you mean. By doomsday in 1086, only about 6% of land still remained in the hands of non-Normans. Conquered takes us into that intervening 20 years. What was it like for those too young to fight off the Normans in 1066, but forced to live with the outcomes of the Battle of Hastings? Stark choices, reduced prospects and a loss of all that had been expected faced those who had been children and teenagers in 1066. How did they deal with it? Well, Eleanor is here to explain it all to us. Thank you very much for joining us, Eleanor. Thanks for having me. So I think one person that people may be aware of who was directly and immediately impacted by the events of 1066 is Edgar Etheling. Can you tell us a little bit about him, please? Yeah, Edgar Etheling is kind of one of the most important members of this generation that I'm interested in for the book. He was a a descendant of the Anglo-Saxon royal line, really the only remaining male representative of that line after Edward the Confessor died at the beginning of 1066. And he was still only in his early teens at the time that Edward the Confessor died. Edward was his great uncle. And it seems likely that Edward had kind of, at least at some point, considered Edgar as a possible heir someone to come after him, because that's what the title Etheling suggests. It's like a, you know, throne-worthy person. So Edgar's claim to be King of England was quite strong in 1066, but he was obviously too young to do much to defend it. And as anyone who knows anything about the, the history of the battles of 1066 will know, he didn't kind of manage to participate in any of all of that was going on between Harold and William and so on. He got very much sidelined. But he is then, in the immediate aftermath of Hastings, he's kind of thrust to the forefront by the Anglo-Saxon adults desperately trying to find a reaction to Hastings because they effectively elect him as king and sort of push him out there almost against William, don't they? 
That's right. Yeah, there's this kind of brief period where some among the surviving English nobility kind of fix on Edgar and try to, yeah, as you say, elect him as king. But it really lasted a very short period of time, unfortunately, because they didn't have the strength, the resources to resist the Normans. So by the end of 1066, Edgar had had to... So that was a very short-lived attempt to to, um, kind of claim his position. And then for a little while, he kind of lived in Norman-ruled England for a few years and then left the country with his sisters um, and his mother and headed to Scotland. And from there... he started to now kind of coming into his own a bit started to try and organize some military resistance to the normans and for a little while he was he was successful with his allies but again it didn't last very long unfortunately i suppose it's another of those unanswerable what ifs from history that if edgar had been a few years older in 1066 could we have ended up with another battle following on from harold hardrada's invasion and then winning the conqueror's invasion we could have ended up with another epic battle to define who would be in control of England, but Edgar just wasn't in a position to defend the claim that others sort of thrust upon him. And so does he then, how does he get involved in rebellion and how does William react to this kind of scion of the the Anglo-Saxon house going against him? One of Edgar's problems was that he kind of didn't have very, I mean, apart from his, um, you know, his ancestral claim to the throne, he hadn't really, he he wasn't born in England because his father had been forced into exile before he was born. And so he didn't kind of have very firm roots in England or English possessions or anything like that. So he really was very dependent on allies. And in the, the few years after the conquest, his most important ally was the King of Scotland, Malcolm, who became his brother-in-law. And so for a little while, Malcolm was prepared to kind of back Edgar's claim. And there were still some members of the surviving English nobility who were also kind of working with him, although whether they were just, they were actually trying to support his claim to the throne or whether they were sort of just more trying to resist the, the Normans and maybe had their other ideas, had their own ideas about who ought to reign is a difficult question. But Edgar, they managed to win a battle at York in 1069 and they managed to kind of capture York and hold it against the Normans for a bit. So there were some sort of short-lived military successes, but as we know, it didn't last very long. And I guess it's difficult to discern whether Edgar, as you say, is being used as a pawn by everybody else who has their own motives. You know, the King of Scots is always going to be keen to cause trouble for the English king and there will be those Anglo-Saxon nobles who've been pushed aside. So does it become difficult in the sources to tell how much of this is Edgar leading in his own name, or whether this is Edgar still being pushed along in front of everybody else who just wants to oppose William somehow. Mm, It is really hard to tell. And the sources in the years after the conquest actually tell us very little about Edgar altogether. They don't seem very interested or willing to record what he was doing or or tell us very much about him. There are one or two sources kind of from the English perspective, which clearly retain an interest in him. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um, still trying to write English history despite the Norman conquest, is still really sympathetic to Edgar and interested in what he was doing. But Norman historians hardly talk about him at all. So it's very hard to kind of sort of build up a picture of what he was intending to do or what he might have wanted or what his plans were. Which is so frustrating because he's such a fascinating character with such a great story at such a pivotal moment in history and he's so difficult to pin down. I mean, we know he goes on crusade, don't we? But we don't know all that much about what happens to him in between everything that is recorded. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he actually lived a really long life after the conquest and its immediate aftermath. We kind of then tend to forget about his story, I think, but he he lived on into the 1120s. So he did lots of other things in his life. He travelled around quite a lot. As you say, he went on crusade, maybe. It's not quite clear what the details are. He went to Italy, he went to Normandy. He was kind of getting involved in other people's battles and squabbles and, and things like that, but never really have in a position of much power himself and always really dependent on his allies and, and anyone who could support him. And what do we know about Edgar's two sisters, Margaret and Christina? How well recorded are they in the aftermath of the conquest? Margaret's life is actually very well recorded, more so really than her brother's, because as I said, so she went to Scotland with her brother and her, the, probably the youngest sister, Christina. 
And Margaret married Malcolm as part of Malcolm's alliance with Edgar and, you know, willingness to, to support him against the Normans. And so contemporary sources are really quite interested in Margaret and what happened to her. They talk a bit about the circumstances of this marriage, about whether she really wanted to marry him or whether she, you know, was kind of forced into it by circumstances, as seems likely. But then it became quite a successful marriage. Apparently they had many children and Margaret became a a kind of a venerated figure as a holy queen and and later a saint. So there are quite a lot of records of her life and the kind of things she did when she was living in Scotland. And it's through Margaret that the Norman kings of England then kind of managed to connect themselves by marriage back to the Anglo-Saxon royal line when Henry I married Margaret's daughter. So, of course, because of that marriage, there was a lot of interest on the Norman side as well in sort of recording her life and her ancestry and telling her story. Christina always gets a bit kind of forgotten out of the picture, though I'm quite interested in her. What we know about her was that she became a nun, Romsey Abbey in Hampshire, maybe for a time at Wilton Abbey as well. And she, while she was there, she educated her sister's daughters. One of the very few things that we know about her, apparently from what Margaret's daughter Edith said, was that she... Christina kind of tried very hard to protect her nieces from what seemed like sort of Norman attacks on them or kind of Norman suitors who wanted to marry them. Christina was a very protective aunt. So we have an interesting kind of picture of her character from that. But we really don't know very much about her otherwise. And does that that first story sort of highlight the difference between the ways that the conquest affected men in Anglo-Saxon England and women? So Edgar is able to get himself involved in rebellion initially, then comes to terms with William, is involved in some of the politics on the the Norman front and all of that kind of thing. Whereas Margaret is kind of married off in an effort to promote Edgar's position. Christina ends up in a nunnery. Does that highlight the, the ways that perhaps men were, although they didn't get a great outcome in all cases, men were much more able to determine their own fate in the aftermath of the conquest, whereas women were pushed around a little bit more on the chessboard kind of thing? Yeah, that's very much the case. I mean, obviously, these this family are in a kind of a very special position because they've got royal blood. And so to be a descendant of the, the you know the Anglo-Saxon kings, it has a lot of value for all kinds of different people who want to sort of use them and push them around and so on. But that kind of thing we see where women get kind of sought out by Norman men as kind of a, a means of like establishing their power by marrying into English families. And of course, English women didn't necessarily likely have much choice in the matter there. So in one sense, they kind of become quite integrated into Anglo-Norman England to the new regime. But then, of course, they're they're in this difficult position where they're kind of, you know, being pushed into participating into a regime they may not have sympathised with and, you know, maybe had kind of surviving family members, as Margaret did with and Christina did with Edgar, who they wanted to help but couldn't help or something like that. It was a difficult position to be in. It sounds like in an odd way, the women may have absolutely not felt this way, but at least had some value in the aftermath of the conquest, whereas the men were a threat, the women were an opportunity or a gateway to integration in England. I'm sure the women didn't feel that way when they're being pushed into some of these marriages, but they were much less under threat maybe than some of the men. Yeah, I think that's right. They were less under a kind of direct threat of like de- being dispossessed or pushed out of England or whatever. They had some kind of value, but then it wasn't a value you necessarily wanted to have, you know, if that made you a target for, say, an unwanted marriage. So, yeah, they were they were kind of in this, this difficult in-between position. And I guess it highlights it perfectly if you're having to put your daughters into a nunnery protected by your sister, <laughs> just to have them raised without being hunted down by Normans who want to marry them. And so some of the others who were active in the aftermath of the conquest, but are quite often overlooked, are the children of Harold Godwinson, so King Harold who dies at the Battle of Hastings. What do we know about how they reacted to the conquest and what happened to them in the end? 
Yeah, so Harold Godwinson actually left quite a few uh, surviving children, some of whom were sort of already in their mid or late teens, and then some of them were much younger. And his brother had also left some some surviving sons. So they were in a, a really interesting and difficult position. Obviously, they're now the, the sort of heirs to a, a completely discredited, shattered, controversial family name, family line and so on. And the Godwin family had been incredibly rich and powerful before the conquest, and they just kind of lost it overnight, effectively. So the survivors now had to sort of work out what to do next. So some of Harold's sons briefly became involved in rebellions against the Normans. So they they went to Ireland and they got a bit of Irish support and and then came back to England and raided in the southwest and the kinds of places where the Godwin family had formerly been powerful. But they were fought off quite successfully by the local, local forces there. So that didn't last very long. And then, and the, the rest of the family, apparently led by their grandmother, Geetha, went first to Flanders and then to Denmark, where Geetha was from originally. And she was a close family connection of the Danish king. So he took them in, this is King Svein Estrison, he took them in and kind of supported them and arranged marriages for <laughs> marriage for the daughter, who was also called Geetha. But we don't know what happened to the to Harold's sons after that, really. There are very few kind of scattered references to, that suggest they stayed in Scandinavia, but we don't really know. And in the book, you talk about one of Harold's daughters, Gunhild, who gets involved in a, a bit of scandal. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, so Gunhild was the only one who really uh, seems to have stayed in England. And she was living at Wilton Abbey. So again, you know, living in a nunnery, presumably because it was a safe place to be. And her aunt, Edith, who was Edward the Confessor's widow, was also living there. So she was probably kind of left in Edith's care. But at some point in the years after the conquest, we don't know exactly when or how, she left the nunnery and she had a controversial relationship with um, Alan Rufus, who was a nobleman, who was one of the most powerful men in, in the north of England. They don't seem to have got married. They might have had a child. The details are all quite murky. But we, we kind of only really know about this relationship because the Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, wrote some very kind of angry letters to Gunhill telling her how shocking this relationship was and telling her to go back to the nunnery. But as far as we know, she didn't do that. So there's something really interesting going on there. And it would be so fascinating to know a bit more about the circumstances in which she met Alan Rufus, why she, if she decided to go with him or kind of what happened there, she may well have been one of those women that we were talking about who kind of finds themselves sought out for the sake of that family connection and the sort of ancestral wealth and line that she kind of represented, maybe. And in the aftermath of the conquest, I think Heriwood the Wake is one of those characters who I find absolutely fascinating. And some people know the story quite well, but I think he has evaded some other people And he's kind of a prototype Robin Hood kind of character rebelling against William the Conqueror. So what do you think about his experiences drove him into such a fierce rebellion in the aftermath of the conquest? Harrywood is an interesting one because he is, as you say, for some people, the most famous anti-Norman rebel. But actually, we know very, very little about the historical Heriwood. We know he was a real person. He wasn't from the kind of distinguished background of the other people we've been talking about. He was probably a, just a minor Lincolnshire landowner who got kind of caught up in the, the anti-Norman rebellions that were taking place in the Fenland and East Anglia and so on around kind of 1069, 1070. And there was a point at which English rebels gathered on the Isle of Ely, which in those days was really an island, so quite a good place for, for rebels to hole up. And the, the island was besieged by Normans for a while. And Heriwood was part of that. But as far as we know, then what happened to him afterwards is much more a question of kind of legend than history. And all of these stories grow up around him, which exactly, as you say, are sort of prototypical Robin Hood stories about this outlaw and his band of followers and how they, you know, capture the Normans and make fools of them and prove that, you know, the English are just as good and just as clever as the Normans. And then the story goes that Heriwood sort of finally um, made peace with the Normans and 
got his father's lands back from the Normans and was kind of allowed to live on in peace. But we don't know if that's true or if that's just legend. It's a bit of a mystery. As you're listening to this, me and Team History Hit are on our way down to the Weddell Sea, joining the expedition mounted by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust to the place where we believe the endurance lies on the seafloor. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the lost endurance shipwreck in Antarctica, with regular episodes and updates dropping in the feed throughout the month. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. said before if you read the chronicle stories of Harrywood it's it gets very much like an episode of the A-Team or something like that you know <laughs> all of these incredible escapes from very nearly being captured and escape from prison and you know beating everybody who gets in his way kind of thing it almost defies belief and is Harrywood do you think the only or the most successful rebel against William the chronicles do talk about William coming to respect Harrywood and in the end Harrywood gets his family lands back and comes to terms with William is he an example of one of the very few who managed to succeed in rebelling against the conquest? I think the thing is, all of that is probably a fantasy. You know, I don't I don't really think William had ever heard of Harry with the Wake or knew anything about him. But it's clear that for people in this area, in Lincolnshire and the Fens and, and East Anglia and so on, he was a real sort of folk hero. So they really wanted to believe that William respected him, that he had shown the Normans, you know, how, how good the English could be, that he had, yes, been like the one successful rebel, the only one to have really won Norman respect and, and managed to kind of get his own way and get his lands back and so on. So I think it's a kind of, it's at least these stories sort of start life as a, a kind of fantasy 
about the Normans coming to respect England and the English. And actually, you know, Hereward was was probably, in the, in the scheme of things, a very, very minor figure, but he becomes this hugely important figure in legend. And that's a very interesting kind of insight, I think, into what sorts of stories people wanted to tell in the aftermath of the conquest, that they wanted some stories like this in which you've got Yes, successful rebels and people who were able to kind of beat the Normans at their own game. It's a kind of wish fulfilment, I think, in a way. Yeah, because I guess there's an element of the Anglo-Saxon English not being able to deny the fact that they've lost. They've been beaten. They've been taken over by the Normans. But I guess what Heriwood gives them is this way of saying, but, you know, there is some resistance. We were successful in some ways. We weren't 100% beaten. You know, we have this little shaft of light out there in the fens who managed to beat William. Yeah, kind of someone they can hold latch onto as a real hero of the English at a time when being English is a really bad thing. And, and there's probably a, quite a lot of sense of, you know, the English having been humiliated and defeated and conquered and, and everything. Hereward is like the one sort of hero they can cling to. And someone else that you discuss in the book is Waltheof, the Earl of Northumberland. So in 1066, he manages to make peace with William and, and retains his earldom and his lands in the north. What do you think soured that initial cordiality with William? So Wealthyoff has an interesting kind of trajectory of peace with the Normans and then rebellion and then peace and then rebellion and so on. So he started off in 1066 as, so he was a fairly minor earl at that time. His father had been Earl of Northumbria and Northumbria, of course, is, you know, a huge and powerful, important earldom. So a really kind of major position. Wealthyoff only held quite a small earldom at the time of the conquest. And he was probably, you know, again, quite young in his teens or something. So he submitted to William at the end of 1066, along with Edgar Atheling and, and the other English nobles. But then he joined in Edgar's rebellion a few years later. He was part of the, the, the army that conquered York from the Normans. So he was like, you know, kind of one of the, the, the figureheads of that rebellion. But then he submitted again to William. And this time he was given a really very generous peace settlement. And he was allowed at that point to become Earl of Northumbria, as his father had been. And he also married William the Conqueror's own niece, Judith. So he was, you know, it's a very kind of honourable position he was given there. He was treated incredibly well. But a few years later, he rebelled again. He joined a rebellion of some other earls. And that time he was executed, even though he'd apparently repented of this latest rebellion and, and tried to get mercy from William and wasn't one of really one of the leaders of that revolt. William had kind of had enough of him, I think, by that point. So what do you think drove Waltheoff into those several revolts then? I mean, if he's allowed to keep his lands and titles, married to one of the conqueror's nieces, that seems like a ridiculously good settlement for an Anglo-Saxon nobleman, what do you think he felt he wasn't getting or what did he think he could get more? Hmm. It's really not clear what his motives were or what he wanted kind of at any stage in the, the different rebellions. Because, I mean, he's one of those people, I think, as I was mentioning earlier, he fought alongside Edgar Atheling, but it may not have been his intention to sort of make Edgar king. He might have had you know, other kinds of preferences about who should who should rule. It might have been the King of Denmark. It might have been Harold Goblins and Sons. Who knows what his, his goal was? And actually, his most, the, the kind of mystery about his motives has been something that people really puzzled over sort of right from the start. I mean, right even at the time when he was in prison awaiting execution, it seems not to have been clear kind of why he was in that position, what he had wanted, what his intentions had been. But there was a sense, at least from some people, that he'd been unfairly treated because he was English. So, you know, he'd been treated better than, than most of the conquered English earlier on by William. But then when he rebelled, he got a much harsher punishment than anyone else did. He was actually the, the only person to be executed, of the, you know, someone of this status to be executed during William's reign. So there was a sense that 
he was a kind of, I don't know, an outlier in a way. He'd, you know, maybe been made an example of because he had rebelled numerous times. And then so for some people that made him actually not just a a kind of a hero, but a martyr, an actual saint. You wonder whether he was treated so harshly because he'd initially been treated so well. So he kind of threw that generosity back in William's face, which drew a, a more harsh reaction from William than anybody else was getting. Yeah, I think that's the impression that you get. And you mentioned there that a kind of cult and an idea of sainthood springs up around Waltheof. What do you think that tells us about the attitudes of the English to those who resisted the Norman conquest? I guess it fits a little bit with what we talked about Heriwood, you know, wanting to see some form of fight back against this conquest. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one because the the area, so Waltheof was not a widely popular saint. He was popular in one specific area and it's um, the same area where Heriwood was really popular. So Waltheof was buried at Crowland Abbey in Lincolnshire and Heriwood also had a link to Crowland. This is kind of exactly the same Fenland area where stories about Heriwood were popular. So I think the fact that at Crowland, Waltheof starts to be venerated as a saint, that people come to his tomb for healing, that miracles are taking place, kind of does suggest that a similar sort of impulse in that area, you know, this desire to find a hero of the English resistance, even though a defeated one, and to sort of think about all you know the ways that he'd been badly treated by William as they saw it, that William had been kind of cruel to him and that he was innocent, really, even though he's rebelled all these times. They kind of told these stories about how he had repented of it completely and, and really regretted it and, and had been sort of saintly right up to the moment of his death. So on the one hand, I think there's clearly a sort of popular interest in him as a, a kind of a hero, a slightly heroic-like hero. And yet a lot of the people who were sort of tele- recording at least the stories of his life and death are not actually sort of from that kind of background, really. It's it's like the Norman abbots of Crowland Abbey and Waltheof's own descendants. So who had, um, through his marriage to Judith, he had a daughter who, of course, therefore had Norman ancestry as well as English ancestry. And she seems to have been one of the people who kind of helped to promote his cult and, and record the, the memory of his life. So for her, you can't imagine it was a sort of anti-Norman act of rebellion it must have been more about sort of remembering her ancestry and the sort of the links that she had to pre-conquest England and the the inheritance that you know the line of inheritance that stretched back a long way and the value that that had for her and her descendants so there are all these kinds of different people who are interested in telling the story of Waltheof and i think this this sense of him as an anti-norman hero is one part of it but actually there are other kinds of things at play as well do you think the effort to have him portrayed as a saintly figure is in some way a reaction to the Normans portraying Anglo-Saxon England as a heretical kingdom that needed to be conquered in the aftermath of, of the conquest. They they say that, you know, Harold is this oath-breaker who doesn't deserve to be a king and that England is rife with all of these problems. So do you think the effort to portray someone who has rebelled against the Normans as a saint is almost a way to counterbalance that image of the English as heretical? Yeah, one of the interesting effects of the conquest that you get, especially kind of once you're into the 12th century, so a little bit of distance from the you know the immediate events of 1066, is you get a real interest from both the Normans and the English in what Anglo-Saxon England was like, what pre-conquest England was like, and sort of trying to find ways to tell the story of those pre-conquest centuries. And on the Norman side, there's a, an interesting kind of, I guess, appropriating that history, really, sort of saying, well, we're here now, we rule England, so England's history is our history. What are the interesting parts of this story that we want to talk about? And so, you know, there's an interest in sort of recording stories from Anglo-Saxon history from that point of view. But on the other side, you also get this sense of, you know, from some English historians of, of kind of loss of something that's been forgotten or, or cut off from them by the conquest and an attempt to sort of bridge that gap. And I think in the stories 
of people like Wealthyoff, you do see this interest in trying to to kind of make connections with what seems like an increasingly distant English past, something that's been sort of separated from them by this watershed moment of the conquest. And so you touched on it a little bit there, but who was who was telling these stories? Why were they recording for posterity tales of rebels who were were more often considered by particularly the monk chroniclers of the time as unworthy and figures to be condemned? Why were they being so well recorded and in some cases held up as exemplars? That very much depends on yeah who's doing the recording really. There were some monk chroniclers who, as you say, were you know very kind of critical of rebels and and saw them as treasonous and um, and very much to be condemned. But clearly, some monks were quite fond of rebels. I mean, the monks of Ely and Crowland seem to love stories about rebels. So there's a, an in, a kind of a, a diversity of interest there. I think partly because of that sense of of you know something that had been lost at the conquest, this sense of injustice, and actually that applies both to I mean in the kind of in 12th century Ely, for instance, the history of the Norman and Siege of Ely is is their history too, whether they're English or Norman. Everyone living in that community seems to have taken quite an interest in, in that story as you know, an exciting part of local history, I guess. So that's one motive. And then other stories are recorded by people. I mean, I mentioned Wealthyoff's daughter, for instance, people like her or Margaret of Scotland's daughter, with these women who are interested in recording the history of their mother or father's generation and how they navigated the conquest, how it was that they maybe came to be part of these mixed Anglo-Norman marriages or whatever it might be. And there's that sense of, you know, trying to narrate that gap in history or that that break with the Anglo-Saxon past to sort of smooth it over, to tell stories of of continuity and of uh, adaptation and, and so on. And then the other thing that's worth saying is that quite a lot of these stories, especially when it comes to the family of Harold Godwinson, are actually hardly recorded in English sources at all. We have to sort of look to sources elsewhere, so Scandinavia, for instance, to get a sense of what happened to them. So there were some people whose stories were maybe sort of seen as too controversial or too delicate a subject for anyone to want to write very much about. And I guess that almost dangerously magnifies people like Heriwood that you spoke about. So where we do have evidence of someone doing something, we lack evidence for the, the children of Harold Godwinson to some extent. But So where we have evidence of a person, it's easy to latch onto it and almost exaggerate and magnify this character into something that he never really was. Mm. It'd be so much more interesting to have a, a full account of, say, Edgar Atheling's life, of the detail that we have about Heriwood's life. I mean, you know, as I said, a lot of it's fictional, but at least it shows people were really, really interested in telling stories about him. Whereas so much of what happened to Edgar Atheling after the conquest is, you know, full of gaps and, and people not really wanting to, to recall what he was doing. And do you think to some extent this generation that is covered in your book was doomed to their fate? So they're sort of stuck between this old world that surely they would have remembered as, as children and teenagers and that probably promised them a, a pretty bright future, but they've been unable to prevent the loss of that. And the new one was something alien to them and which treated them often with suspicion. So were they sort of doomed to this in-between fate of not being reconciled to the regime constantly rebelling sort of on this revolving cycle of trying to find a place in that world. Mm, I think it was a really difficult position to be in because, I mean, what was kind of interesting to me about this generation was that they just, they weren't at the time of the conquest in quite enough of a position of power to take much control of their lives or, or of what was going on. They were sort of completely dominated by William and the, the you know, much more powerful people on the Norman side. And so they were really very much sort of victims of circumstance. They could try and, and rebel, but they never really succeeded in doing that. And of course, that, you know, wasn't an option for anybody. And especially for those at the highest level of society who are sort of as I was saying about the children of Harold Godwinson, kind of heirs to this incredibly controversial legacy, 
where the Normans have, have chosen to blacken Harold's name and his entire family. How do you then cope with that as the, as the inheritors of, of that legacy? And I think it's, you know, it's not surprising that they didn't remain in England. They felt they, you know, it seems like Harold's Robinson's children, with the one exception of, of his daughter Gunild, kind of didn't see any future for themselves in England. And that's probably true. They, they probably were better off getting out. <laughs> and so how long do you think that friction lasted? Do we see it sort of fading away in the next generation uh, who were almost presented, I guess, with the fate accompli? It's a done deal for them. Do they find it less problematical to live under Norman rule? And do the Norman kings find them less problematical as subjects? Or is it something that persists for quite a while? Yeah, so in the next generation, we already start to see a kind of more integrated population because you start to get the birth of a generation who then, I mean, like Waltheof's children have ancestry on both the Norman and the English side. So they're no longer necessarily strongly identifying themselves as one or the other. It's a mixed kind of society. And of course, as, as time went on, that started to, you know, that increased and in, uh, more and more and you get the, you know, a much more integrated society generally and much less clear distinction between the English and the Normans. But I think the fact that stories like Heriwoods go on being popular right through the 12th century up into the 13th century, and I mean, I kind of never cease being popular really, um, suggests at least a real continuing interest in this sense of what might have been lost at the conquest or, you know, some sense of like England had lost its way or had lost something valuable anyway, even though this new society had emerged, there was some sense of of, of kind of loss and, and injustice still persisting. Even as, from a Norman perspective, everything probably seemed fine, but there were definitely still, um, from the English side of things, a, a sense of, of loss, I think, certainly. I guess the danger is the previous Anglo-Saxon English period could almost take on a rose-tinted spectacle view as a idyllic past that the Normans have come along and smashed, which maybe it never quite was. And so then I guess all these chronicles talking about rebellions and uprisings and the fate of that generation, is that maybe a way for them to talk about and try and heal and address and come to terms with what has happened, what's changed, what's been lost? Yeah, I think it is certainly true that the further away you get from the real Anglo-Saxon past and from the people who had memories of the pre-conquest world, the more it becomes this kind of idealised place. And the sort of stories that are told about Hereward fit in with the kind of other very fictionalised romance type stories you get in the 12th and 13th century, which are sort of set in this, this idealised version of Anglo-Saxon England. And by that stage, it's out of living memory. And it's very much like how people want to imagine this past society to have been doesn't bear much relationship to what Anglo-Saxon was, England was really like. That's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Eleanor, to go through the details of that. Can you tell us where we can get our hands on your book, Conquered, The Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England? It's out now and you should be able to get it all good bookshops. I thoroughly recommend it to anybody. Don't forget to join Dr. Kat Jarman on Tuesday for another brand new episode. And don't forget also to subscribe to Gone Medieval wherever you get your podcasts and tell all of your friends and family that you've gone medieval. If you do get a moment, please drop us a review or rate us anywhere that you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify. It really does help new listeners to find their way to the podcast. If you're enjoying this and you're looking for a bit more medieval goodness in your life, then subscribe to the Medieval Mondays newsletter. Just follow the links that are in the show notes below. Anyway, I'd better let you go. I've been Matt Lewis, and we've just gone medieval with History Hits. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.